From the University of Cambridge, this is Election, a weekly politics podcast. My name is David Runciman, and I'm going to be coming to you every week from my office here in the Cambridge Politics Department to talk about the campaign, the election, what might happen, what does happen, and we're going to keep going until Britain gets a new government, however long that takes. This week, my guest is Martin Rees, the world-leading cosmologist and one of the co-founders of the Cambridge Centre for Existential Risk, which has been exploring some of the challenges and threats to the very survival of the human species in the 21st century. Everything from nanotechnology and malevolent robots through to bioterrorism and extreme climate change. We'll be talking about the dangers posed by the new technology. I really don't see how we can prevent a few weirdos or fanatics from having a global range when they're empowered by new technology. But also about some of the amazing value that it offers. In my case, I would pay more access to Google than I would pay to run a car. So how can politicians square these enormous threats and opportunities with the messy and miserable business of trying to get elected? Stay tuned to hear more. Before that, we discuss this week's current events. In the past few days, we've seen one of the first polls that show the Tories moving ahead of Labour by a considerable distance. This poll may be a rogue, but it's also fueling fears on the Labour side that perhaps the election is going to turn into a straight choice between the two main parties and their leaders. As one commentator put it, we may be seeing this fractured multi-party system forced back into a binary choice. We've also just seen the publication of a letter from the bishops of the Church of England giving voters the opportunity to see some of the real choices behind what the politicians are offering. I'm joined by our regular panel, Finn Barlibsey, who works in public policy, Helen Thompson in economics, and Chris Brooke in political theory, to talk about what the real choices are that are being thrown up in this election. Chris, do you think that we are going to see a binary choice in this election? And if we are, does it still make sense to talk about this as a choice between left and right in politics? Uh, yes, I think that it does, more or less. It's true that from the perspective of the anti-austerity left, it looks as if there's not much to choose between the main parties. But it looks reasonably clear to me that uh, Mr Cameron and Mr Osborne uh, want to make the British state smaller and that Mr Miliband and Mr Balls are comfortable with the size that it got under New Labour. That, to me, looks like a left-right division. I don't think that's going to go away. So you think left-right maps onto big state versus small state. Finbar, do you think that that's how it plays out? I don't think so. I think the big state, small state conversation is much larger than left-right. And I think so much of the left conversation has essentially disappeared from British politics. We're not having a proper conversation that spreads across that old version of the political spectrum. We're having a new conversation under the hood about whether or not we want to have a strong governance. So what, what, what's missing? What's the old stuff that's not there anymore? The old stuff, there, there isn't Public enough, ownership? Pub, public ownership. There isn't enough conversation about um, public interaction. There's, there's heat and light around welfare, but there isn't a real conversation around welfare. So, Helen, big state, small state, that's the choice in this election. I think the parties want us to think that that's the choice, and they map their positioning onto... Labour being big state, less austerity, Conservatives being small state, more austerity. But I don't actually think that that's what the underlying economic questions are. I think both parties are trying to act as if the financial crisis didn't happen, as if it is possible to think about the relationship between the state and business and politics without thinking about the crony aspects of the relationship between those three things. And then in some sense, both of the political parties are in favour of that crony corporate business political relationship and don't have a way of articulating the problems that people have with those vested interests around that. 
So that leads us into the Church of England's letter this week. The bishops have given some advice to the voters, though they're very, very clear that they're not telling the voters how to vote. It says in the letter, anyone who thinks that this is telling you to pick this party or that party has misunderstood what we're doing. But then that makes it a slightly odd letter because it's still giving some fairly clear-cut advice. But the implication seems to be that they want people to think about the real choices behind the choices that they're being offered. Chris, does that make sense to you? Do you think it makes sense to say to people that there is a real set of choices behind the choices that the party leaders are offering them? I don't think it makes a great deal of sense. Um, I was looking through the document uh, yesterday, and it's like quite a bit of other political writing, uh, except it uses the word prayerfully a lot. It looks to me as if it's a symptom of the Church of England's acknowledgement of its own political irrelevance. I think if if you could make a strong case that the Church of England was going to be a significant political actor in this election, it would have been much more cautious about uh, making a public statement. So I'm not quite sure what's going on, but uh, it, it doesn't look to me as if it's especially important in the grand scheme of things. It is, it is also implying, Finbar, that there's another kind of division here, which is the basic division, you might call it the kind of Russell Brand division, between people who vote and actually care and the people who don't vote. And it's you know, the one thing it's absolutely clear about this uh, Bishop's letter is it's encouraging people to vote. It says it's really important to vote. I mean, is maybe that the division here between the 60%, say, of people who are going to vote and the 40% who aren't? Is that the division in British policy? I don't think it is because, unfortunately, the game goes to those who turn up. So you can't say that's the division. If you're not voting, you're not in the conversation. Um, so for what it's worth, get out and vote. This letter, for me, is fascinating. It's unprecedented. The letter that was sent in the 80s around Thatcher's policy was fundamentally different. This is talking about the election in the round. Now, I have to say, and I apologize, I went to a Presentation Brothers Catholic all-boys school, so forgive me, but I was the class atheist. <laughs> so I have, I have a different set of prejudices that may or may not come out. However, I find the letter absolutely fascinating. I think it is of a different tone. I think it has the potential to get through to voters in a way that the statements from the major leaders doesn't because it uses different language. And I actually do think that there is a moment, if this penetrates, if this can get through the noise, it will have an impact. So there is a, a problem because there's another division here, which is it, it is addressed by the bishops to the members of the Church of England. And we know that though people often describe themselves on forms as Anglicans, people who attend church, it's a very, very small number, small proportion of the electorate. So how's it going to reach to the class atheists like you? Absolutely. Well, it's not going to reach me. I'm not you're fascinated by it. I'm, fascinated. Not actually... I'm not going to be touched by it. <laughs> However, if you look, I, I took a quick look at the British election study. Uh, their last panel of data was collected at the end of last year, roughly 28,000 people. So these aren't numbers that you can say are the whole, whole of the country, but they give you a rough indication. When you look at those numbers... 38% of Conservatives say that they are C of E Anglican. 39% of UKIP say the same. So there is a moment where you have to pause and say, if people are adhering, are listening, are taking the church's perspectives on board, as well as other voices, the media, the politicians, and everybody else, this potentially can have an impact. Do you know by chance what it was for Labour? Uh, Labour's around 22%. Okay, so there is a difference, because that then relates to the question of whether they are actually giving some steers here about how you should vote, because on that account, more of their audience are going to be Conservatives. But there are some fairly clear statements in this letter, one of which is that Trident, the nuclear submarine, is 
I'm paraphrasing here, but theologically and morally more or less indefensible. That does seem to rule out some of the parties. It does seem to point you more in the direction, as it were, of maybe the Greens or the SNP than it does of the Tories. So do you think this is a... Can this really be a kind of neutral piece of advice at the same time as having these clear statements of principle? No, I think it's a, a very strange letter in the sense that it combines these positions that clearly do rule certain parties out, not only on Trident, but on welfare reform too, which you can see Cameron already being very annoyed about this letter for that reason. But the other thing that's very striking to me about it is that having criticised the Russell Brand position, the non-voter position, there's actually quite a strong anti-politics tone to it. All this talk about a new kind of politics without any specific content, complaining about retail politics and wanting the politics of the common good instead of retail politics. When people make these kind of arguments, what they don't like is politics as conflict. On the one hand, it seems that the Church of England is taking a position in a party political conflict, as on Trident and welfare reform. On the other hand, it's saying, please, can we have less conflict in politics? And, and they seem to me to be two very different positions. Yeah, I mean, I have to say, I felt something similar reading it. I felt that they were saying both that they found politics not adversarial enough because the main politicians were, in their words, just giving this kind of soft soap, easy answers, and that they found it too adversarial. It wasn't at all clear to me how you're going to square that circle to be both less and more adversarial. I think they're going to be disappointed on both fronts as this campaign wears on. I think they're going to find that the two sides, uh, in a way, conform exactly to the thing that they don't like. And I was going to say, I think there's another contradiction as well. On the one hand, that they say that they want politics to be less parochial, they want it to be more international. On the other hand, they say they want people's specific sense of community and roots to be more part of politics. Again, those two positions push in completely different directions. Thanks to Finbar, Helen and Chris. Now my interview with Martin Rees, the cosmologist and also the author of a book published in the year 2000, which predicted that the human race only had a 50-50 chance of getting through the 21st century without a major setback and perhaps even extinction. I began by asking him whether he thought the odds had improved at all since then. Right, right. I say really I thought there was a 50-50 chance of some big setback to civilization. I don't think we wipe ourselves out. Um, but it's amusing that the Americans retitled my book as our final hour. <laughs> I guess they like instant gratification and the reverse. Um, but uh, what I did say was that I felt that we were entering the first century in the history of the Earth, and the Earth's been around for 45 million centuries, where one species namely our species, has the future in its hands. And that's really because, for the first time, there are enough of us, each demanding of resources, to have an impact on the planet. And these impacts of two kinds. The first is the collective impact we're having on the climate, on resources and the environment and extinctions, etc. And that is now, of course, uh, fairly high on the public discussion agenda, although not really on the political agenda. But the second kind of concern I expressed, which I think has been less widely appreciated, and that's that we are vulnerable to the misuse of high tech because we are in a much more interconnected world than before. We depend on uh, elaborate networks, just-in-time deliveries, the internet, GPS and all that, and all these are vulnerable. We know also that pandemics can spread around the world in a few days at the speed of aircraft, and panic and rumour can spread at the speed of light, and this, I think, makes us vulnerable and allows small groups or even individuals to have a far greater 
impact than they could in the past. And you say that some of these things are on the public agenda, but not on the political agenda. It's hard to get politicians to talk about this stuff. This podcast is in the build up to an election where politicians are not going to be talking about this stuff at all. How do you think that we should be addressing the communication problem with these kinds of risks? Well, of course, the trouble with risk, in particular climate change, for instance, is that it's a long-term threat and also it's a global threat. And, of course, politicians focus on the parochial and the short-term, and that's why it's doubly hard to get interest in climate change. And I think there are interesting philosophical questions about the climate change issue where the disagreement is not so much about the science as about the ethics and economics. Now, the attitude you take, therefore, depends on your view on our responsibility to the long term. There's a famous so-called Copenhagen Consensus, led by Born Lomberg, and he gets a lot of economists, and they say that climate change is a low priority compared to other ways of helping the poor. And that's because they apply a standard discount rate, and that therefore values at essentially zero everything that happens more than 50 years from now. On the other hand, if you take the alternative view, which implicitly Nick Stern takes and uh, others do as well, it's that one should apply a small discount rate to long-term issues, and one should value future generations. Uh, One should, as it were, not discriminate on grounds of date of birth. And therefore, one should be prepared to make some sacrifices now in order to remove a potential threat from those living 100 years from now. So the difference between advocated policies by different groups is, I think, a difference in the ethics of our responsibility towards future generations and economics, as much at least as differences about the science. And that's why it's hard to get it up the agenda. Exactly. That choice is between two visions of the long term. That's right. Democratic politicians, 50 years is a long, long time. Five years is a long time for democratic politicians. When you look at democracy in action, and we're, we're in the middle of a period of democracy in action now, you look at what the politicians are saying. Do you see any space in that kind of public discourse for these conversations? I see rather little, especially because these issues have to be tackled globally. What we do in this country is only 2% of what needs to be done. So they're difficult to address because we know that we don't have very much control over what happens because we're only 2% of the problem and 2% of the solution. But, of course, the reasons for disillusion with politics are wider than just the fact that this is a long term. It seems clear that more and more of the issues worry all of us are beyond the control of national politicians. And I suppose this is one reason for damaging consequences. The first is the uh, spread of uh, extreme parties from the Greens to the uh, UKIP. Do you think the Greens Uh, are an extreme party? I think they're a good influence on the whole, given the uh, narrow spread between the three main parties. But I I think, obviously, their views are a bit unrealistic. And, of course, uh, enough said about UKIP. But I think it's because public is unwilling to realise that, realistically, there's not a great deal of politicians can do about many of these problems, that they go for these parties. And also, of course, there's another consequence which you've, I know, written about, which is the quality of people going into politics is going down because it is a a game where you feel there's less chance of achieving something than there might have been 50 years ago if you're a UK politician. And, of course, the pressures from the press are far more intrusive. And so I think those two reasons, the uh, manifest 
lack of freedom of action which politicians have and the pressures they're under does turn people off from supporting the main parties. So is this grounds for disillusionment with democracy or grounds for disillusionment with 21st century politics? Because some people would look at this and think problems are too big for our politicians to deal with wherever they come from. Well, I think it's true that the politicians can't deal with these problems because they are very long-term and they're international. And this is clearly a problem for democracy. In fact, Marcia Sen has written about this. He famously said that because India was democratic and had a free press, they didn't have famines, etc. But he has said more recently that now that the problems of India are long-term developing a good infrastructure, etc. The democracy is a handicap compared to the Chinese situation. So I think it's genuinely the case that uh, democracy is a handicap, clearly in India and I think in other countries, when the problems we have to address, be they um, climate, environment, energy, health, are all long-term, where you want to have a consistency that extends over far more than a single parliament. Of course, being slightly more parochial, I think we can hope to have longer-term consistency and take things like education policy out of the ding-dong of party politics. We're not doing that now, but I think it would be good if we could. And in particular, energy policy, which I'm involved in because I'm on the Lord Select Committee on uh, Science and Technology. We've been thinking about long-term energy security. And this is something where you do need to plan 30 or 40 years ahead to ensure the lights don't go out, etc. And here again, one wants a bipartisan policy with not political ding-dong. But do you think taking these questions out of the political ding-dong means empowering people like scientists, experts? I mean, is, is technocracy the answer to this? No. I think those of us who've dealt with scientists in the parochial environment of universities know that they are not very wise when political decisions need to be taken. So you don't want to empower the scientists? Not particularly, no. I think uh, <laughs> one wants to involve them. And I think one does want to have a, a political class which is slightly more aware of scientific realities and of these long-term issues and of probabilities. So I would like to perhaps change the balance among active politicians between uh, the number of lawyers and the number of scientists. But I think uh, one doesn't really need to be a professional scientist in order to engage. In fact, if we think of Parliament at the moment, some of the people who are most effective in advocating issues with a scientific dimension are not trained scientists. Someone like Phil Willis, for instance, who was chairman of the uh, S&T Committee in the Commons. He was a primary school headmaster, I think, and uh, he's got a very good perspective. And there are many people like that who have a broad perspective, and they're at least as good as a professional scientist would be in that role. And so what do you then think the key is to communicating this stuff to the public? Because as, as you've described it, part of the problem is the kind of people who want to go into politics now, it's a narrower and narrower field. But there's also a set of expectations on the side of the public about what's possible, about what the correct time horizon is. How do you bridge the gap between public expectations of politicians and what politicians can do? Well, I think um, preachers and celebrities can have an effect in making people aware of these long-term questions. And I think opinion polls show that the under-30s are more concerned about uh, environment and climate change than people who are older, not surprisingly, of course. Um, and I think if one could strengthen the view and the consciousness of these policies, then there might at least be more support for the idea that they should be treated on a bipartisan basis and taken out of the uh, party politics. But as you know, one of the problems with 
democracy as it currently exists is that those people under 30 who care about these issues also on the whole don't vote and people over the age of 65 <laughs> do vote and that yeah. makes it very hard for politicians who want to get elected or particularly re-elected mm. to rebalance the nature of the argument. Well this is very unfor- unfortunate and this is uh, I suppose the effect of social media and Russell Brand etc and I think... Although it predates the, the, of the trends predate that but yes, yeah, yes it might accelerate it. Yeah, yeah. Yes. Whether 18 year olds voting would make things better or worse I don't know. 16 year olds Um, So I I think this is something which probably the media could perhaps help with. But at the moment, it is an unfortunate trend, I agree. And does it leave you pessimistic about the long-term future of democracy, therefore? Because, like you say, people like Amartya saying you hear it quite a lot, that whatever we might think about what it would be like to live under the Chinese system, it does have the advantages of both decisive action and long-term planning. And the two things that people complain about about democracies, and they do pull in different directions. People complain that democracies don't think sufficiently long term, mm-hmm. but they also take too long to do anything. <laughs> Democratic politicians are caught between these. And this is an age, as you say, this is the first century where the human race has its own future in its hands. But this is also the first time in my lifetime that you feel this, this groundswell of opinion within democracies, that this system itself is part of the problem, not the solution. Do you have any sympathy with that? Well, I think it's seen as being rather old-fashioned in many respects, and Parliament could change itself in a way to uh, alleviate that concern. But I think it's inevitable that most of the issues are going to be international rather than uh, local issues, and that's why we've got to uh, take seriously the EU and other international organisations, in my opinion. And yet part of the driving force of the disillusionment that you talked about, the Greens on one side, they are broadly internationalist in mm-hmm. some respects, as well as being very local. Yes. But nationalism is the rising force in European politics, as you know. Mm. And there's that tension too. So we know that the problems are international, but the frustration with that doesn't drive internationalist political parties, it drives mm. nationalist political parties. Uh, no, I agree. And uh, so I share your reasons for being depressed about the future. I don't really see an answer. Just as uh, in my book about uh, long-term threats, I really don't see how we can really prevent a few weirdos or fanatics from having a global range when they're empowered by new technology. These are problems which we're going to face, and I don't think they're necessarily going to be soluble. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. And one of the things that you've said recently is that you think that politicians and the public, it's not as if we're not talking about risk, but we tend to be preoccupied with the minor risks, the minor hazards, and we neglect the really big ones. Does that include, in your mind, questions like terrorism and the the whole surveillance culture? So we're preoccupied with the thought of certain kinds of threats and attacks, 
which can dominate political discourse, but we don't spend a lot of time thinking about the potentially catastrophic threats. That, that's right. We are in denial about the risks we ought to worry about, ones that could be really catastrophic, and we fret too much about minor risks, you know, carcinogens in food, uh, safety of trains and aircraft, and indeed about present-day terrorism, because of course present-day terrorism uh, is... Uh, headline news, uh, whereas if it were regarded as a criminal activity, that might be somewhat better. So which are the, the, the risks that you would like to hear the politicians talking about now? I mean, climate change is one, but what are the other ones? In the, in the space that we call security or security politics, what are the things that really threaten our security? Well, I think clearly the European situation at the moment does, but I personally think that uh, the UK politicians ought to address the concerns about uh, the growing divide between the, uh, the the well-off and the poor and insecure. I think the biggest problem, uh, and this is a global problem, is the uh, the growing inequality. I mean, it's a platitude to say this, but I do think it's really worrying that uh, in this country the um, median person is worse off in real terms. There's one reason perhaps why they're not worse off, and that is that uh, in the last 20 years, they have all benefited from IT and the internet and all that. And that's an area where there is uh, a very large sort of consumer surplus in that you don't pay very much, but you get benefits, so it doesn't show up in the GNP. And in my case, I would pay more access to Google than I would pay to run a car. But in fact, I have to pay a few thousand pounds a year to keep a car on the road and nothing for Google. And so I think... Except you pay with your data, which you you give them whether yes. you like it or not. Yes, that, that's right. And so, but people don't mind about that. That's what we've no, discovered. No, but, but clearly uh, we do benefit from high tech. We don't have to pay for it. But apart from that, I think what worries me most, um, and here I'm thinking about uh, UK politics and being a UK citizen, is uh, the growing gulf between uh, a privileged upper middle class um, and uh, everyone else. And it's not simply the real terms decline in income is the decline in security. And I think the worst thing is the um, so-called flexibility in the labour market, which, of course, means insecurity for people at the bottom of the heap. And it really outraged me when I read that Osborne had been at Davos talking to UK business leaders saying he wanted to make it easier to hire and fire. And that just means more zero-hour contracts. And surely for the average person, what is most important is to have reasonable security and a job that gives them reasonable self-respect. And that's why I think Blue Labour and uh, colleague Morris Grassman have a lot of uh, credibility, in my view. And I think another issue that depresses me very much about present politics is that all three of the main parties are, in my opinion, far too relaxed about overseas ownership of our key assets. There's no other country that would be relaxed about its utilities, its airports, etc., being owned by foreign countries, often unfriendly countries. And I think it's tragic that if we have nuclear power stations, if we'd had them 20 years ago, they might have been UK-owned. They're now going to be state-owned, but by the French state or the Chinese state. That doesn't seem to be progress. So I think it's bewildering that we in this country are so relaxed about selling off these assets and that we welcome the fact that the Chinese want to buy our assets. We should be rather worried about this, in my opinion. But as you say, so this, there's a lot of public anger at the moment. This is definitely an election. We'll come on to this in a second. It feels to me slightly different from previous elections in that there's a lot of 
anger it's going in lots of different directions mm-hmm. and it's it's really threatening to some of the ways that we we used to expect democracy to function yes but people don't seem to be angry about some of the things that you're angry about. Well, no, so that's what right. explains that disconnect? I mean, not well, I you personally, know. but it, it, yes. it's striking. There is so much anger, yes. and yet not much of it seems to be channelled in the directions that you, you feel it ought to be mm. channelled. And one possibility is the, the technology, which, as you say, does in some respects cushion some of the effects of inequality because of the availability of certain services that weren't yes. there before. It also fuels the anger, but it fuels the anger in a particular direction. It makes it very personal. It fragments it in lots of ways. And the things that you're talking about do depend on certain kinds of collective understanding and action. Yes. Well, I think there's a undue amount of fatalism. The uh, idea of having a so-called flexible labour market and all that uh, is something which people are all too willing to accept. The inequalities, people say it's inevitable, it'll get worse when robots come and all that. And it's not inevitable. You could have massive redistribution to deal with this sort of thing. And I think people ought to realise that um, we can think out of the range of options presented by the three main parties. One example, as I say, is foreign ownership. Another is taxation levels. So I think people ought to realise that uh, one can have a wider range of options than those on offer. And I would criticise the Labour Party for not being more overt about saying, you know, it might be a good idea to renationalise the railways and to uh, renationalise some of the utilities, etc. Uh, I, I think the parties are perhaps too much part of a consensus. And maybe this is linked to the fact that the politicians are a rather narrowly selected group. So, so do you feel, if, if you look at British politics now, and you look at that that range of options. Part of the problem is that this is a political system which, on the one hand, is dysfunctional, but in a society which, as you say, though it has serious fundamental long-term problems, mm-hmm. is, by any historic standards, this is a comfortable and yes. peaceful place to live. Yes. Mm-hmm. And there's that tension in our politics, which is there's all this anger and there's all this discontent, but the fundamental challenges don't come to the surface because they don't actually seem to impact on people's everyday lives. I mean, does it have to get worse before that space opens up? I would hope not. Um, I would hope that gradually people will become more aware of the long-term threats. Perhaps we would need to have some kind of shock, you know, some uh, environmental disaster or something like that, or some really serious breakdown in the internet that causes uh, big problems. As people always say, causes the cash machines to stop handing out yes. money. That's always the, the symbol of the systemic <laughs> yes, yes. failure that will trigger some kind of public... Yes. Well, of course, we know we are vulnerable, and uh, just-in-time delivery means that the sh- supermarket shelves would be bare within two days if supply chains were disrupted. So we are vulnerable, and I think it may need to for there to be some kind of uh, crisis of that kind to make people aware of the vulnerability and to make them realise that we do need to think globally. But do you have any sympathy with politicians, therefore? Because we both remember the fuel crisis under Blair's mm. premiership, where within a few days the, gov- the government yes. and the country seemed like they were grinding to a halt. Yes. And the lesson that politicians and civil servants take from that is they must do everything in their power to make sure that those kind of scenarios never arise. And it must be hard being a politician, as you say, in a just-in-time culture, where those worst-case scenarios are looming and you have to work all the time to think about what could go wrong. Mm. No, I think it's very hard, and that's why uh, it saddens me that politicians aren't regarded with more respect, because 
they do have huge responsibilities. Something can go off at any time, which is a, at a crisis. And, that's and they what, will get blamed. Uh, they know that. And the, Whatever they the crisis. They will get blamed. Yes, that's right. And so I think they, they do need to be more respected. And I think being a, like you, a university professor, it does sadden me that politics is less the career of choice for some of our best students than it was perhaps uh, 30 years ago. So one of the things we're going to do on this podcast is get a group of students around this table and press them on this question, ask them not only why some of them don't vote, and mm. considerable numbers of them don't vote, yes. but I teach in the first year at Cambridge 150 politics students, and I asked them at the beginning of the course how many of them are thinking of a career in politics, meaning Westminster politics, mm. and the answer is very, very few. But like you say... It's partly because they think politics is international, not national. Mm. So the, their interest in politics yes. is mm. way bigger than what they think is possible within the Westminster space. And that's a really serious problem. Right. Well, if they do work for an international organisation, that's fine. What they should not do is go and uh, work in uh, a hedge fund or something like that. And, of course, that's uh, another downside of... How would you stop them? <laughs> um, uh, well, well, I mean, I, I think the, there's been a real sort of a coarsening and corruption of life because in the post-Thatcher era, people have respected those who make money and the inequality got far greater. And uh, one of the things I did when I gave graduation day speeches to the students in my college was to say that uh, some of you may go and work in the city, but um, uh, don't expect respect and don't say you're joining the real world because faffing around with financial derivatives is further from anything that matters than being a doctor, a teacher or anything else. So at least we can not accord these people respect and try and discourage our students from going that way. But of course, a more effective way would be if the financial differentials were reduced so that it wasn't as it is now, uh, possible to earn the largest amount of money by doing uh, uh, activities which uh, Adair Turner quite rightly categorised as socially useless. So a final pair of questions that link up where we started with where we've got to now, which is risk, but also financial markets and the attraction for mm. our students and others. <laughs> so this is also, in a way, a post-crisis election. The 2010 election was, was relatively soon after the financial mm -hmm. crisis. This is five years on from that, so there's a little bit more perspective on it. Why do you think that the crisis of 2008 hasn't done more to change politics in some of the ways that you've been talking about? Not just to discredit the banks and to raise the issue of inequality, but also to make people more aware of these fundamental risks, because if nothing else, that crisis did illustrate the ways in which we are, in some respects, always on the edge of a precipice in this, this kind of global order. Well, it's made people perhaps fatalistic because they've realised how hard it is to do something about it because uh, uh, we haven't seen a huge amount of improvement uh, in the last seven years, as you know, and I suppose people have perhaps become reconciled to that and they've uh, realised that it may be very hard for politicians to actually implement any improvements. I think it's fatalism which has spread. And in a way, that's the really depressing thought because... If the 2008 crisis produced more fatalism, then one possibility is that we need a worse crisis to cut through that kind of fatalism. Because after all, the thing about the 2008 crisis, though it made people feel there wasn't a lot that could mm. be done by politicians, the politicians did prevent the worst from happening. There's yeah. that sort of mix of the experts came in and stopped the disaster from unfolding. But the politicians weren't then able to open up a space for these new possibilities. Yes, but it's still not absolutely clear what should be done to reduce the risk of that sort of disaster. And 
of course, there are other different kinds of uh, problem, a food crisis in the developing world or something of that kind, uh, which, again, we can't foresee. And the worry I have is that just as that 2008 crisis was not foreseen, uh, there may be other future crises of quite different kinds, uh, which, again, come upon us unexpectedly and which are so serious that once is too often. So finally, looking at this election, we're looking at this election in this Mm. podcast, does it feel different to you from other elections that you've known? And do you, I mean, one of the things I'm fascinated by, someone who has your (laughs) range of perspective, you're a cosmologist for something else, so you you, you think about these things in in the really, really long term. And then you look at something as parochial and short term as a British general election, and yet if you're living in Britain, this is really important stuff. Mm. So how do you you balance the two? You look at this this current bunch of politicians and the the, the offer that they're making to the British public. Do you think it matters? Or do you think that they're... There are bigger forces at work here. Well, it does. Although I'm a cosmologist, uh, that doesn't make me uh, fret any less about what happens uh, next week and next month and next year. And so I'm I'm very very concerned about what will happen. Um, I'm concerned most of all about the uh, possible leaving the EU, uh, which I think would be a, a real disaster, just as I'm very concerned about possible Scottish independence, which would have been a real shambles for a few years in readjustment. Um, so I just hope we can avoid some unnecessary change, which would cause huge short-term distractions from the long-term problems. It would be even harder to deal with long-term problems if we were trying to adjust to uh, being outside the EU, for instance, just as if we had to contend with Scottish independence now, it would cause all kinds of internal difficulties, which would be a distraction. So we must just hope that there is as much continuity as possible in minor matters, and that thereby people might consider more the longer-term issues, which are really the important ones, and also realise that um, we do have control over what happens 30 or 50 years from now by decisions which politicians take now. Thanks to Martin Rees, worrying about the big stuff for the rest of us. Now back to our panel. Helen, do you agree with Martin Rees that it's surprising more people in this election aren't worried about the fact that so much of British industry is now under foreign ownership? I think that in one sense it's very surprising that the general internationalisation of the British economy is not more contested part of of British politics because there's all kinds of things that you can say from both a left and right position about this. On the other hand, I don't think the politicians have have really got any idea about how to have a different kind of economy, one that was less dependent on international capital, so that they actually accept working um, within the constraints of it. And that's in part where you get Labour's problem of having a radical rhetorical critique of the economy and yet having policies that in specific terms are really tilting at windmills. Yeah, because in a, in a way they are caught in a bind here, which is to talk about this stuff openly is a kind of admission of their own powerlessness. Once they tell people what's really going on, people will start to notice that the ones that they're voting for can't deliver on what they're offering. I mean, are they, are they stuck in this space, that they have to pretend that they have powers that they don't have? No, they're not. And they have taken the decision that they don't want to talk about it because they feel they don't fully understand what choices they have, and they don't feel that they can make a statement that's clear and will garner them some positioning that isn't open to massive tech, as Helen says, from the left and the right. This is a very contested discussion, and we've had it over 30 years, the deindustrialization, the apparent loss of manufacturing, the conversation 
wasn't a short one. And we've ended up in a position where we have a quiet agreement on a subject where we shouldn't have quiet agreement. And there's also always the question with these things, which is that electoral politics goes to the person who manages to keep the message simple. And international finance, the role of international capital in British industry, it's quite hard to keep that conversation simple. Is there any way, Chris, you think that a politician trying to get elected could get electoral capital out of this? Or is it just the kind of thing that's going to turn voters off? Well, I think one of the things that's interesting ish about the uh, Ed Miliband has been doing is that you saw him a few years ago trying out some slogans. Uh, He made a speech once on the theme of predatory capitalism and clearly when he ran for the leadership of the party he was trying to position himself somewhere to the left of of the old New Labour position that was um, extremely enthusiastic about the City of London. And you can see that a few years ago Miliband tried out a slogan but it's one he hasn't really returned to He was given an open goal last week when he was able to turn the um, row about uh, business into uh, 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 slamming uh, tax avoidance. And then Ed Balls Um, turned it into an own goal by (laughs) making an issue about window cleaners and their receipts. But I just just throw that in. Yes, and uh, and, and Harriet Harman is in there uh, somewhere too. But Milliband hasn't really followed that up. He tried producing a slogan, but even having boiled things down to a slogan, he wasn't quite sure what to do with it. And I think that does say something about the difficulty of handling these complicated issues in the the electoral arena. And the slogan was predators versus producers. And in the long run, what that seems to have done is to have annoyed the predators, but not got a lot of traction with the producers, which is part of the problem here, right? Well, I think also it just doesn't get to the crux of the international issue. I mean, predators versus producers can apply just as much to a straightforwardly domestically owned economy. It doesn't actually get at the issue of internationalisation. I don't think there's anything that... Labour said under Miliband's leadership that goes to the place of, well, what do you do when you have an internationalised capital city like London that is acting as an investment haven for the rest of the world? So we just heard that the left-right division does still crop up because we've kept talking about it, but there's something going on that's bigger than that. And we're going to get onto that in the future weeks of this campaign, talking about how the politicians can speak about things that are extremely complicated in ways that might win them votes. And we'll see whether any of them manage it. It's not 100% true that there aren't statements here about this. The new Labour economic plan that they released at the start of the week actually has a section on tightening up the rules on uh, companies being bought. They make statements about the fact that there needs to be certainty for business. And one of the certainties that they're talking about is having control in the UK, which means ownership in the UK, so that decisions are made more on a national basis. Now, it's unclear what that rule structure change would be, but it's in there. That's it for this week. Thanks to all our contributors, our panel, Chris Brooke, Finbar Livesey, Helen Thompson, our guest, Martin Rees, and also for production, thanks to Hannah Critchlow and Francis Durnley. Join us next week when I'll be talking to Martin Jakes, who's going to be giving us the view from China. Does this election really matter at all when you think about it in global terms? That's next time. This has been Election, the Cambridge Politics Podcast.
Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Are you ready for truly hydrated skin? Meet Hyaluronic Body Serum, a breakthrough in body care from Osea. It's clinically proven to instantly increase hydration by 161%. Their lightweight, fast-absorbing serum delivers 24 hours of nonstop hydration for silky smooth skin without the sticky afterfeel. Osea's latest innovation combines the magic of their best-selling Hyaluronic Sea Serum with a new formula that's good for the whole body and five types of hyaluronic acid to target every layer of the skin. Osea is a women-founded, women-led brand that's been crafting seaweed-powered products for nearly 30 years. The best part? Everything Osea makes is clean, vegan, cruelty-free, and climate-neutral certified, so you never have to choose between your values and your best skin. Treat your skin to clean, vegan skincare from Osea. Get 10% off your first order site-wide with code SUMMER at OseaMalibu.com. That's O-S-E-A-Malibu.com code SUMMER.